All right, so good. Anybody needs a sheet? Brian, I think, got everybody in the back, so we're in the book of Colossians, if you want to open up to Colossians 1 and Colossians 4. So four chapters, 95 verses, just under 2,000 words, as you see from your um, handout there. The author is very clearly Paul. In the first verse, you see the greeting is from Paul, Colossians 1.1. In the last verse, Colossians 4.18, you see the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. So both the greeting and the closing are from Paul, so there is no doubt that Paul is the author. Uh, But what's interesting, if you go to chapter 1, Paul did not start the church at Colossae. In fact, Paul had never even been to Colossae at the time of the writing. He'd never seen these people. So it's one of the rare churches that he had no, you don't find him visiting Colossians or Colossae in the book of Acts because he never went there as far as we know. And if you look at Colossians uh, 1.4, everything he knows about them, he's learning from other people. Colossians 1.4, he says, we heard of your faith. He hadn't seen it. Uh, if you look at verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1, he talks about um, Epaphras, um, who had kind of given us, who, verse 8, declared unto us your love um, in the Spirit. So Epaphras, I guess, was reporting to Paul about this these body of believers in Colossae. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, which is maybe the most definitive about it, in 2, verse 1, it says, I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So he hadn't been there. So he's writing to a church that he'd never seen, kind of like us. And um, the man Epaphras is believed to have founded the church. It seems like this man Epaphras might have preached the gospel and ministered to people and some people got saved in 1-7. You saw that in 1-7. It talks about uh, Epaphras declaring your faith to us, hearing about your faith from Epaphras. But if you look at 4-12, you see it again, Epaphras' heart for his own people. 4-12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So Epaphras was a fellow prisoner of Paul's in Rome. Uh, We don't know if Paul led him to Christ, but if you read Philemon, we'll get there eventually, Philemon, verse 23, he mentions Epaphras. Epaphras was with him in jail uh, when he was in Rome, and Epaphras was the man that must have brought the gospel to these people, his own people, Got a burden for them. He's praying. He's witnessing. Somebody's getting saved. And Epaphras is reporting back to Paul. Um, Colossians is one of Paul's four prison epistles, right? Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. uh, Those are the prison epistles. Um, You know, some people make too much of the prison epistles. Some people want to cut your Bible up so much that they think the prison epistles are the only things you need to read. That's wrongly dividing the word of truth. But those are some of Paul's prison epistles. Approximately 64 AD, that's where Usher puts the date. Uh, Some people say 61, 62. But all around the early 60s there, around the same time he's writing Ephesians, around the same time he's writing Philippians, he's writing to the Colossians. And Epaphras, just picture it, Epaphras is reporting back to Paul, and Epaphras must have told Paul, yo, Paul, there is some bad doctrine that's brewing in my hometown. 
Because if you look at chapter 2, Paul, mentioned, I mean, Paul writes about four really bad ideas that they need to be on guard against. 2.8, he mentions in Colossians 2.8, he mentions philosophy. We'll talk about that later. Philosophy is not good for your faith, right? The ideas of the world, philo-sophistry, right? The love of knowledge, right? Philosophy it's just love of knowledge, just love of learning. It just, just, we love to read books, right? I want to read about Kant. I want to read about Nietzsche. I want to read about Kierkegaard. I want to read about, you know, all these guys. It, you need to read your Bible. <laughs> you need to see what the Bible has to say. And I don't have to read about Calvin or uh, what, uh, you know, Chrysostom wrote or what, you know, Justin Martyr wrote and all these church fathers. Read the Bible, right? We need the words of God. Uh, now, some of them have some good stuff. I like to read a good book here and there. But never let the reading of books by men... Replace your reading of the book by God. That's, that's a good rule of thumb. 2.16 is another problem. It seems like the legalism of Judaism was creeping in there too because he's talking about don't get hung up on meat and drink and respecting holy days. So that Judaizing was creeping into Colossae. That's a bad idea. We saw that in Galatians number three. Look at 18. We got people worshiping angels. That's another bad idea. We'll talk about that later. You don't need an angel. You don't need a guardian angel, right? You've got the Holy Spirit. What do you need an angel for? Angels are not doing anything now, guys, but watching. They're watching. When we're out of here, the angels get active again like they were in the Old Testament. Right now, the angels are watchers. They're desiring to look into the things that we have. Um, and then 220 to 23, I'm not going to read all these verses, but the bad idea of asceticism is creeping in. Asceticism is that big word for severe self-denial, severe self-discipline, like, like a monk. Like a monk might, you know, like I joke around, might drink butterfly sweat for 30 days and they're gonna, that's somehow pleasing God. You know what? If you go out tonight and have a steak or go drink butterfly sweat, God really couldn't care either way. God's looking on the heart. <laughs> Bible says every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. So if you could thank God for that burger or thank God for that broccoli, whatever it is you're eating, God says if you could thank God for it, praise the Lord. But this self-denial of I'm not going to eat and I'm going to you know, do Lent and I'm going to just deny myself all these pleasures, that doesn't impress God. That might impress me. That doesn't impress God. So these are some of the bad ideas that are creeping in. Now, key words. The word head three times. That's important. Christ, 24 times. Laodicea, five times in four verses in these four little chapters. I'll show you where it pops up. 2.1, he mentions Laodicea. Um, 4.13, he mentions Laodicea. 4.15, he mentions Laodicea. He says, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. So whatever is given to us in Colossians is meant for the Laodiceans, which means what Paul wrote to the Colossians was also meant for Laodicea. And guess where we're living right now? We're living in Laodicea. So what's in the book of Colossians is super important for us today. Now, many years ago, my dear Pastor Mike Veach spent about seven years 
on Sunday mornings, teaching through the book of Colossians. Some of us remember that from back in the day. He went through every jot and every tittle. I'm going to do the complete opposite. I'm going to try to hit it all in one night, right? So it'll be the opposite of that. But if you want an expanded version, I'll try to get you his notes. But and years ago on a Wednesday night, I taught through Colossians to a bunch of young kids. But it's a great book. Um, physically, here's why it's a great book. Physically, if you look on a map of the New Testament, Colossae was about nine or so miles southeast of Laodicea. Not, not too far. But the problem is, spiritually, the Colossians were too close to Laodicea. Spiritually, the Colossians needed the same message as Laodicea. They were close in physicality, and they were getting too close in their spirituality. So what's said to Colossae is also meant for Laodicea and vice versa. Now, let's think about the books we've just read. Are you with me so far? Say amen. amen. Okay, great. I don't know what was in that shake, but I took a few pulls, and I feel like I run a marathon. All right, but anyway, um, we read Philippians last week, right? I offended, I offended my son. He's leaving. Oh, my goodness. Right. Philippians lines up with the Philadelphian church. That was a good church. That's what we should be as Christians. Colossians lines up with the Laodicean church. That's what we sadly become as Christians. So the order of the books are very telling. Key verse, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Look at it with me. Key verse. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's a key, key verse. So Ephesians gives us the mystery of the body of Christ. Amen? Colossians reminds us to, reminds the body to hold on to the head. See Colossians 2.19? It says there are some Christians that are not holding the head, Jesus Christ. When the body gets disconnected from the head, you got a problem. And I didn't need to go to any kind of anatomy classes to know that much, all right? So the key theme, the key idea is the supremacy of Christ. That, as Colossians 3.11 says, Christ is all. Christ is all. That's the key idea. Christ is all. And Jesus Christ is presented as our life. Not part of our life, our life. So that brings us to the breakdown of the book. Chapter 1 is the deeper life. Chapter 2 is the higher life. Chapter 3 is the inner life. And chapter 4 is the outward life. So we're just going to break through those four chapters a little slowly. And let's dive in here. Let's go to chapter 1. Let's talk about the deeper life. You know, people always want to get deeper. I want to just know the deep things of God. I want to get deeper. I want to get deep into the Bible. Well, this book starts by talking about the supremacy of Christ. It starts by telling you that Jesus Christ is over all things. So you want to get deeper? You've got to make Christ all. Let me show you what he's Overall, look at 116. For by him, meaning Christ, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions 
or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Notice the first thing. Jesus Christ, number one, is the creator of all things. That's the first thing you got to get. He's the creator of all things, even the invisible things, even the spiritual rulers in high places. He says, I'm Lord over them. I created them. I even made the devil. Now, you got to remember. Remember Isaiah chapter 14, way back in your Bible? What does Lucifer say in his heart? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The devil had a throne. What is Daniel? He gets visited by Gabriel, and, and Gabriel was trying to get to Daniel, and Gabriel says to him, I was trying to get to you to answer your prayer, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. He says, then God made Michael one of the chief princes stand up for you. Those angels up there are called princes in a kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says that he delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Never forget, folks, that there is a network of evil enshrouding the earth. There is a government of wickedness enshrouding the earth. There are principalities, there's powers, there's, a, there's a, an evil angel that looks over New Jersey, perhaps. There's an evil angel that's looking over maybe Europe, perhaps, and these beings are out there, part of this wicked system. And when the Bible talks about spiritual wickedness in high places, you don't get any higher than up there. That's how high we're talking. And the Bible's full of that. So Colossians starts off by saying that Jesus Christ created even them. So as scary as that seems, and it's giving you goosebumps perhaps, that I'm talking about these beings in heavenly places that are moving things around, because the Bible says the heavens do rule. you got to know it's not Joe Biden and Donald Trump that rule. you got to get that, please. Those guys are pawns. Up there, the heavens do rule, and God is working out this glorious chess game with the devil, and he's always a billion steps ahead of him, and he's just like yawning as he's moving his pawn to rook five, and you know, the devil is just like, I got him, I got him, and he's just like, that's what's really going on. And God starts off Colossians by saying, hey, I've made everything, even the spiritual world that is in control of the physical world. Colossians 1.17, he's also and he is before all things. He's also Lord of all things. When it says before there, it doesn't mean he's just the first one. It means he's preeminent in worship. Like the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? He is before all things. He's ahead of all things. He's preeminent of all things. That shows you that Jesus Christ could not be a created being. Because all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's before all things. So how could there be anything? How could he be made? No, he's the one that made everything. Look at 17, keep reading. And by him all things consist. He is the sustainer of all things. Can you imagine a world without letters? Think of a world without letters. We'd be really, how are we talking to each other, right? We use language all the time. We communicate in words. We're people. We're not dogs, contrary to what your biology teacher told you. We're people. We're not dogs. We live in a world of letters. We think in words. We communicate with language. What made that language consist, God? By him, all things consist. 
right? Everything, just the way language would fall apart, the universe would fall apart. He upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1. He holds the atoms together. You got a positive nucleus and negative electrons spinning all around it. You know what positive and negative does, right? They attract. How come every atom in your body doesn't collapse in on each other? Because God holds them together. God holds them there. They even talk about some of those forces as the God force. You know, because they don't know what it is. How come the atoms in your body don't just collapse in on each other and you turn to a pile of nothing? Because the Bible says, by him, all things consist. And one day when he says it's done, even the elements will melt with fervent heat. Even the carbon will just go into such entropy, such heat, that it'll just vapor, vaporize, vaporize into nothing. Just take that in. That's when the Big Bang is. The Big Bang is at the end. It wasn't at the beginning, right? The Big Bang comes when God says it's done, and he lets the elements even melt with the fervent heat. Look at chapter 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, same thing he told the lay of the sins, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is preeminent in all things. He is the head of the church, the beginning of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. Hey, he gets all the glory in the church. Unto Jesus Christ be glory in the church, Ephesians chapter 3. We give him the glory because we wouldn't be here if not for him. You got that? Say it again, brother. I need to hear that again. All right. You wouldn't be here physically if it weren't for him. You wouldn't be here spiritually if it wasn't for him. There'd be no salvation. There'd be no hope. There'd be no redemption. There'd be no mercy. There'd be no grace. You wouldn't even know what those things were if there wasn't a Savior that came up from the dead to give you those things. That's why he gets the preeminence. And lastly, verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Jesus Christ is the reconciler of all things because he's the only one who can break, fix what's broken. He can't, you and I can't fix what's broken. I try to fix something, I can't figure it out, I got to go ask Danielle's brothers. They can't figure it out, then I got to go pay money for it. Right? You got to find somebody that can figure out how to fix what's broken. Jesus Christ is the one who can fix what's broken. That's why he gets the glory. Now, look at, verse, look at verse 22. And he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, but the thought doesn't stop there. If, if, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and unsettled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. You won't make it to the judgment seat of Christ unblameable if you don't continue. He saved you by his grace. That was free. But if you want to get to the judgment seat of Christ unspotted and get the reward... That's on you. You've got to continue if you want to be found unblameable and unreprovable. That is an allusion in verse 22 to our presentation day. See that, that what does he say, 22? To present you. You know when a bride steps into the, to the chapel or to the hall? That's her presentation day, right? She's being presented to her groom. She's being presented to her love. She's being presented to the one to whom she is going to spend forever with, right? Our presentation day is coming. 
One day the Holy Spirit that's been working on you is going to swing those doors open and say, here comes the bride. And Jesus Christ is going to get off his throne and he's going to greet you and that's going to be your presentation day at the judgment seat of Christ when we stand before him. Doesn't that make your knees knock a little bit? Or are you so dead because you've been playing, you know, Flappy Birds so long or whatever it is you're playing that your mind is so numb that you can't be moved by anything other than a nuclear blast, right? The fact that you are going to stand eyeball to eyeball and be able to see the piercings in the brow of your Savior. You're going to see where they pressed the crown of thorns in and you're going to see his eyes of fire looking back at you and he's going to say, What's, whose spirit came from thee, right? How hast thou helped him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? How hast thou counseled him? Right? He's going to look at you in the eyes on that presentation day. And Paul's saying, you better keep going. You better not give up. You better not let your wedding garment get soiled because the day is coming when you're going to march down that aisle. 23, you see it? He says, you got to be grounded and you got to be settled so you're not tossed to and fro. We're not supposed to be tossed around. Remember Paul? You've heard of Paul, right? You heard of the Apostle Paul? Have you heard of him? You heard of him? He's in the Bible somewhere, the Apostle Paul. He said, my life is a pattern for the church. I'm a model. I'm a prototype. I'm a, I'm a test drive. 1 Timothy 1.16. Do you remember how Paul's life is at the end of his life? He's on a ship that's getting wrecked in a storm, being tossed by a tempest called Eurocladon. He's being tossed to and fro in a storm. And the Bible says, don't let your faith be made shipwreck. Because at the end of this thing called the lay of the sea in church age, which is the end of Paul's life, it's pictured in the end of Paul's life. Here we are. You know what the church is? We're getting tossed to and fro. God says, you want to make it? Get grounded, get settled. Get those anchors out and get settled in some truth. Verse 24. Who now rejoice... This is a very interesting verse. I'm going to tell you what I think it means, then you can figure it out. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. I think Paul is saying, I'm suffering for the body of Christ to make up for all that Christ suffered for me. I want to fill up that which is behind. Jesus Christ did all that suffering for me back there. Right here, I want to do some suffering for his body right here. He did some suffering in his body back there. I want to pay him back by doing some suffering for his body right here. Is there anything in you that wants to pay Christ back for all he paid for you? I mean, you are worth nothing. Okay, I know that rubs your Adamic nature the wrong way, so I'm going to say it again. You're worth nothing. God would have still been God. Heaven would have still been beautiful. And God would not have been any less God if you never graced the celestial shores. You don't make God any more God. You don't make any more powerful. You don't add anything to his assets. You were garbage that he saved out of the trash heap before it was going to go into the incinerator. And he made you something beautiful. You owe him everything. And if God would do that for you, isn't it the natural affection to want to reciprocate something back to him? God, I'm not worth anything but the backside of hell, and you went to hell for me? I should try to do something for you. 
I mean, my son had a good oncologist. He never did anything but look at some slides and be a nice guy. I wish, if he asked me to do something for him, I'd do anything for him. He helped save my son's life. Hey, Jesus Christ saved your life. Not by just looking at MRIs and, you know, lumbar punctures. He went there and got in the middle of it himself and burned for it and suffered for it. Hey, we should have something. Sh- I mean, if that, if there is no natural affection, the Bible says. You are fulfilling the verse of 2 Timothy that says people at the end of the time, days will be without natural affection. Because saying that bothers some Christians. They want to think, hey, it's just, I want to, you know, what about me, my life, my relevance, my truth, my hope, my my relationships? How are you going to help me with my 401k to be a good steward of my assets? I just want to have a little Jesus sprinkle on my Sunday. Don't give me, hey, the Bible says you should want to pay him back. It's the natural reciprocation of someone who saved your life. Paul says, hey, I want to fill up in my body what he did back there. If I could suffer for him here to pay him back for what he suffered back there, I want to do it. I'll rejoice in it. Let's do it. I hope you're not without natural affection. 25. Am I coming on too strong for Thursday night? I could, I could tone it down. I could, I could tone it down. I give me the stool, and I'll just lean over the stool, and I'll just, God loves you. I could do that, but it's not going to be very edifying. Uh, 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Obviously, Paul is the minister to the church. He has a special role and relationship with the church. We acknowledge that. We don't go beyond the bounds of Scripture with that. Paul is not Jesus Christ. He's not the foundation. He just helped lay the foundation. Okay? Keep going. 26. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul wanted to make known not just the mystery, that Jews and Gentiles could be in the same body. That's amazing. He wanted you to know the riches of that mystery, the glory associated with that mystery, that you could reign with him. Now, you in Christ, that's one thing. You being put into Christ was a work of God to give you salvation as a gift. Amen? God took you out of Adam, and he put you in Christ. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Right? You got saved when you called upon Jesus Christ in time, not in eternity past. In 1998, I called on Jesus Christ, and God took me out of Adam and put me in Christ. He didn't do it back there in eternity past. He did it in 1998 for me. When did he do it for you? In time, at some moment in time, whether it was 2012 or whatever it was, give me, somebody call out a year when they got saved. What year did you get saved? What? 2017. 2017, Mario got taken out of Adam, put in Christ. Now, God knew it was going to happen, but God didn't decide in eternity past and put Mario into Christ in eternity past. He did it in time. He did it in 2017. God saw it. God knew it, but God gave us free will to choose it. And just because God could see it doesn't mean God made you do it. That just means like me reading a history book. I know, oh, Napoleon, don't go to Waterloo. Don't go to Waterloo. I know what's going to happen when he goes to Waterloo because I can flip through the history book because I'm outside of history. God is outside of time. So we can see, I know what you're going to do tomorrow, Ryan. But I'm not going to make you do it, but I know what you're going to do. 
because he could see it because he stands outside of it. So he knew that in 2017, Mario would get saved. He didn't make him do it, but Mario said, I'm going to put my faith and trust in this Savior. And God said, okay, I'm going to cut you out of Adam. I'm going to put you in Christ. And you got life. That was a work of God. That was a gift. That's you in Christ. Christ in you is a work of the saints to earn glory as a reward. You tell me you're in Christ, I want to see Christ in you. How much of Christ do I see in you? You know, when you stub your toe or somebody cuts you off in traffic or somebody gets on your nerves. How much of Christ do I see in you? You see, you in Christ got you the, got your salvation. But when I see Christ in you, that gets you glory. And he says, I'm trying to let you see the hope of glory. The fact that the more Christ is in you, the more you're getting conformed to that image, the more glory you're laying up in store for yourself. I know it's not as exciting as Flappy Bird, but I mean, the glory God's got for you is pretty, pretty exciting, pretty unbelievable, right? Uh, let's go to 28 and 29, all right? Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Paul's like, I'm warning you believers. That's not a warning for the lost. That's a warning for the saints about your presentation day. Are you taking heed? I hope you're taking heed to the warning. Let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Chapter 1 was the deeper life. Chapter 2 is the higher life. God wants to bring you higher, bring you to new heights. I'll show you in chapter 2 how the Christian can go higher and how the Christian does not go higher, all right, in your walk with God. First, verse 2 that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. The first way to go higher is you've got to see the mystery of God's progressive revelation. There was God, then Father, now you've got the fullest revelation, Christ. See that? Old Testament, Abraham, God. The nation of Israel, they called them their father. You know him as Christ, the one that died on the cross for you, the one that saves you and redeems you. It's God revealing more and more of himself. So if you want to go higher in your faith, you've got to stay with Christ. I'm not going back to just Jehovah. Somebody that says, well, I'm a Jehovah's witness, you're going backwards, son. <laughs> It's Christ now is the fullest revelation. I want the most God's shown me. I don't want to go backwards. Christ is the full revelation if you want to go higher. 2.6, you want to go higher? As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Amen. Had you receive him? By faith. How are you supposed to walk? By faith. Amen. We see the call to walk by faith the same way you were saved by faith. You got saved when, like Mario in 2017, you realized you were lost and you needed grace and you didn't deserve it. So God would give it to you as a gift if you called upon him in faith, believing. How do you get victory over your bad habits? How do you witness to your friends? How do you develop new character? You don't have any ability built into yourself now. You've got to have the same faith that saved you to help you walk. That's how you'll go higher. Religion's easy. This, that's all I got to do. I just walk in and do this? 
I do this. I come on a certain day. I put the envelope in. I put the right amount in the box. That's all I got to do. That's easy. Faith, that's what God rewards. Because that's, you got, no, you got nothing tangible. You're walking by faith and not by sight. God says, that's rich. That's the higher life. 2.11 to 13, I'm not going to read these verses, but he talks about the doctrine of spiritual circumcision, that God cut you. We talked about it a few Sundays ago. He cut your soul free from your flesh so you could have a place for the Holy Spirit to reside without being tainted by your flesh. That allows you to be eternally secure. So if you drive out of here today and you come across a dead body or you say something you shouldn't say, or hear somebody saying something you shouldn't say, you don't lose your salvation because your soul is cut away from your flesh. That lets you be eternally secure, and you'll never go higher as a Christian until you settle it that you're secure in Christ. If you're still wondering about, did I lose it? Is he going to let go of me? Because I could let go of him, but I could let go of him, and he doesn't let go of me. If you're still dancing around with those thoughts, you haven't settled that doctrine of eternal security, you're only going to hit the ceiling in your growth. But if you want to go higher, you've got to realize that I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And that security helps you grow. Amen. It helps a child grow in a parent relationship, and it helps a Christian grow in a New Testament church relationship. Here's what else will help you. Now, here's what will keep you down. 2.8. Number one is philosophy. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Do you, how many saved philosophers do you know? Not too many. They're too into themselves and what they think. You know what philosophy does? It spoils you. You take some food, right? You have some nice dinner. Maybe you have some leftovers. If you don't preserve your food properly and the air gets to it, you know what happens to it? It spoils it. And that awesome leftover you want to have and heat up the next day is going to be shangad and be gross because you didn't seal it and preserve it and protect it and it got spoiled. And the same thing, if you don't protect your walk with God, the ideas of this world will spoil you you got to get a little narrow-minded. you got to put on a little filter and say, you know what, that idea is not godly. That idea is not godly. That idea is not godly. And seal those things out of your brain so you don't get spoiled, pillaged, robbed of the walk you could have with Jesus Christ. I'm just warning you. The Bible says beware, lest any man spoil you. Pastor Dean preached a message many, many years ago called Finishing Strong. And he mentioned three guys, Billy Graham, Chuck Templeton, and Reinhold Schmidt. They were three evangelists that roared out in, I think, the 50s, and they were turning America upside down. We all know about Billy Graham, but we don't know about Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was turning the world upside down more than Billy Graham, more fiery than Billy Graham, more sought after than Billy Graham, more effective possibly than Billy Graham. But you know what happened to Chuck Templeton? He went to school. He went to Princeton Theological Cemetery, I mean seminary. And Chuck Templeton died as an agnostic because philosophy spoiled him. Instead of believing the Bible and preaching God's word like he was doing good at the beginning, he went into school, got some book smarts, started reading about all these books, got his head filled with philosophy, and started questioning his faith so much that by the end of his life, the man who was turning America upside down 
Now wasn't even sure if there was a God. How'd that happen? Philosophy spoiled him, right? Keep reading, 2.16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbath days. You know what else will spoil you or mess you up and not keep you from going higher? Worrying about the Old Testament law. He says, keeping the Old Testament law won't take your relationship any higher. In fact, it's going to make you go backwards. That's going backwards if you're worrying about, do I worship on a Saturday or do I worship on a Sunday? Anybody bumped into those people? Anybody bumped into like Seventh-day Adventists that want to fight with you about, you know, do we, do we worship on a Saturday? Do we worship on a Sunday? You know, Sunday worship, that's the mark of the beast. What? Huh? What is that? Nonsense. I could worship on a Tuesday. I could worship on a Thursday afternoon. If we could find a building and we could only use it on a Saturday morning, I worship on a Saturday morning. Right? I want to try to do it on Sunday because that's the pattern of the New Testament, but I'm not under any obligation. God says there's no holy day to respect, to follow, or watch. 2.14 says, He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he declared those rules and regulations null and void. Why would I want to go back to what God declared null and void? That's putting yourself back under bondage. I don't think Eli wants to walk around wearing a prayer shawl and a yarmulke and a tassel. You ever see those guys outside Mamanese wearing wool coats and wool hats in July because they want to look like they're special and separate and holy? That's going backwards. That's going back into bondage. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. God says, I nailed the ordinances to the cross. You want to go higher? Free yourself from those things. Look at uh, 2.17. He says, those things are a shadow of things to come, which suggests that the law does come back in the millennium, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Question, what would I rather embrace, the body of my wife or the shadow of my wife? I got the real thing in Jesus Christ. Why would I go back to a shadow? (laughs) The law is just a shadow. You got the real thing. So don't give up the real thing for the shadow. 18, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. You don't need to worship angels. That's not going to take you any higher. You got some people out there. There's a spot in Staten Island up by, uh, by St. Joseph Hill. I think it's called like the, they had a name for the Touchdown Center. They got this little, little, little island in the middle of the street there where the streets intersect with, with all these statues of angels. And they say that angels come down there and touch down there. Sure. <laughs> Whatever you say, ma'am. Right. <clears throat> Are you doing any LSD? Because you sound like you're tripping. Right? The angels come down and, you know, we see the angels. I saw the angels. You don't need an angel. If you have God living inside you, what business do you need an angel for? No angel would bother with you because the angels right now, they're just, if anything, they're messengers. But in the church age, they're just watchers. So these people, oh, I just worship angels and I got a guard angel because, you know, you get this, because I'm spiritual. No, you're not. Your spiritual is just not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's another spirit. But, that's, you know, but they put on that voluntary humility. <clears throat> oh, what's that thing around you? Like, that's my guardian angel. You know, I've got my guardian angel, and I worship angels, and I pray to this angel. And they put on that, you know, that pseudo-pious, you know, voluntary humility. God says, that's nonsense. 
you have the Holy Spirit. What are you doing messing around with these things? If you had an angel talk to you, like Muhammad said an angel talked to him, you know it wasn't one of God's angels. <laughs> because God's angels are just watching. Let me get off that before I get in real trouble. Uh, 2.23. And he talks about will worship. Right? Touch not. 21. Touch not. Taste not. Handle not. I'm going to be like a monk. I'm going to put burlap on and live in a monastery and not, you know, eat this chocolate anymore. And I'm not going to enjoy a steak ever again. I'm not going to, you know, like Mormons, don't drink caffeine. You know, we're going to separate ourselves from caffeine. That's really spiritual. You don't drink caffeine. God bless you. That's amazing. Wow. You don't have, have, you know, here's a Coke. Oh, thank you. Oh, no, no. That's great. That's, you know what that is? That's will worship. That's me. Look at my will. You know, that's like Lent. I'm going to give up chocolate for these 40 days, except on Sundays when I could break it and still be good. That's Ramadan when I'm going to stuff my face once the sun goes down and before the sun comes up and just brag to everybody that I'm so strong in my devotion to God. That's will worship. That impresses men. That doesn't impress God. So, number three, chapter three. Now we're going to talk about the inner life, right? We talked about the deeper life, making Christ all, the higher life, and now the inner life. And to work on your inner life, you know what you got to do? you got to change your wardrobe. You see, the Christian life is about putting some things off and putting some things on. That's the whole Christian life. Taking off the old clothes and putting on some new clothes. I'll show you. Three, five to nine. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, that's loving the wrong things, um, evil concupiscence, that's unlawful lust, that's unchecked lust, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walk sometime, when ye lived in them, we were all there, amen, we were all there, I'll say it for you, we were all there, verse 8, but now... He also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. You see what the Christian life is? Part of it is changing your wardrobe. Put off all those old things. You shouldn't be lying anymore. You shouldn't be screwing around anymore. You shouldn't be uh, uh, coveting, coveting anymore. You shouldn't be having this unchecked lust where you can't help yourself. Hey, gluttony is as much a craziness as pornography. If you can't stop whatever this thing is you got driving you, you got a, c- a control problem. If you can't control your lust, then that's a problem too. God's saying you're not supposed to put off that anger. Put off that malice. I'm Sicilian. I want to give somebody the Maloikia too. But I'm supposed to put off that desire for vengeance. It belongs to God now. I'm supposed to put those things away. I'm a new creature in Christ. Put some things off and then put some things on. We don't want to walk around naked, right? We put off the old clothes. We put on the new clothes. The new clothes are in verses 10 to 14. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, 
bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. That's what you're supposed to put on. You're supposed to put on some kindness, put on some meekness, put on some humbleness, put on some lowliness, put on some forgiveness, and put on some charity that makes the whole thing hold together. Make God's love, put it in action. That's what charity is. You got all this love for God and love from God, put it in action with your fellow brother or sister. That's what you're supposed to put on. Am I talking to anybody tonight? <laughs> Don't go to sleep on me. Don't go to sleep on me yet. I'll be, you can go to sleep soon, but not yet. Now, 15. Here's what happens when you do that. When you change your wardrobe, you know when you go somewhere and you're not dressed right? You're uncomfortable the whole time. I'm underdressed. I'm overdressed. I got a stain on my shirt. But when you're dressed right, 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you're called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do, do it, do all in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. That's your inner relationship. You want to see what happens when you get your inner relationship right? When you get your relationship with God right here, your relationship with others out here will fall into place. We get it backwards. Oh, God, fix my marriage. Oh, God, fix my friendship. Oh, God, fix my family. God says, I got to fix you first. If I can fix you and me, you'll treat your spouse better. You'll treat your kids better. You'll treat your coworkers better. You'll see the world differently as soon as you get this right. But we're we're pragmatists. We want to fix the problem and not the cause. The cause is you got anger and frustration because you're bitter at God. You got, you got you know, malice and covetousness because you're not satisfied with God. If you could get this right and get the inner life right, put on those things you're supposed to put on, you'll have peace and watch what happens. Cha- verse 18 all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1 is all about the outward relationships. Wives, husbands, children, servants, masters. Those are all outward relationships because when your inner relationship with God is right, your outward relationship with others will be right. See how God puts it in priority? Get it right with me and you'll get everything right with other people. Chapter four. The letter ends with advice about the outward life. See how the book went? Chapter 1, Christ is all. Chapter 4, other people. Jesus, others, yourself. You see? He puts Christ first. If we can get everything right about Christ first, then our dealing with people outside of ourselves will be right. Oh, if we could get that. Here's some advice, ready? Here's some advice about the outward life. Verse 2, continue in prayer. And watch in the same with thanksgiving. With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. The first things he starts dealing with is how do we deal with the lost? Right? How do I deal with the lost all around me? First thing he says is, man, we've got to constantly pray that we speak to the lost about the Lord. 
We've got to be praying and praying and praying so that we open our mouth the right way with all these lost people all around us, right? So that we're not saying the wrong thing, so we're not taking God's name in vain, so we're not a bad testimony, so that if we get a chance to speak, we say the right thing and don't mess up God's picture. So constantly praying about that, asking prayer for others about that. That's one, verse five. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. That's the lost. Redeeming the time. He says, you want to deal with the outward life? We've got to walk wisely with the lost because time is limited. And though you're going to heaven, they're going to hell. So the way you walk and live around them is going to affect them. And if your life is an open book, what do the lost see? Do they see wisdom? Do they see foolishness? Foolishness is acting like there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Wisdom is the opposite of that. So how are you walking? Are you living your life like a practical atheist? You know, I believe the Bible, I'm saved, but my day-to-day, I'm deciding what's best for me. That's an atheist, people. That's an atheist. If you're not checking in with God about child-rearing, job choices, wardrobe, attitudes, music, movies, record, if you're not checking in with God about everything, you're a practical atheist. You can't pick and choose where God gets to say things about your life. He's God. He can tell you what to do with sports, what to do with your pastimes, what to do with your work choices. He is Lord of all. Christ is all, right? And if you're going to pick it, well, you know, I put him in the box on Sunday, and he comes out of the box on Sunday, you're like a practical atheist who wants to remand God to a little box called religion that I take him out like a good Catholic, I hold him up, and I put him back in the box like Jack in the Box. That's religion. That's practical atheism. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be living like God is real. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Not foolishness. Not like the fool that has said in his heart there is no God. Because you'd never say it with your mouth. We'd shame you out of the church. But in your heart you say, there is no God. I don't have to worry about cheating on that homework assignment. God's not watching. God doesn't care about that. I don't have to worry about what I say to my friends behind the school. God doesn't care about that. It doesn't matter what I, you know, what I look at on my computer. God doesn't care about that. Oh, yes, he does. <laughs> oh, yes, he does. <laughs> Christ is all. And when that hits you, that's when you break out of the funk and you start to realize, whoa, this is, this is what a relationship is like. <laughs> does my wife just want five minutes of my day? <laughs> okay, this is your five minutes, honey. Okay, I'll see you later, right? That's religion, right? Hey, God, here's your 45 minutes. Okay, now I can leave. Some of us came out of that religion. Go in there, sit in there, punch our clock, take the cookie, eat it, we're good. I'll see you next week, unless I got something to do. That God says, I'm all. Christ is all. Am I making any sense here? You're all like, this is too much for a Thursday, right? Keep going. If the lost see you living like there, is no, like there is no God, like a fool, what hope do they have? They got no hope. If the people that say they know God are living like there is no God, what left do I have to? I mean, just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So the Bible says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, lest you send them to hell with your bad life. Um, verse 6. 
Let your speech, now he's talking about not just how you live, but your talking, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. We've got to season our speech with salt. You can't dump. If I open your mouth and pour a salt shaker down your throat, you're going to gag. I'm going to choke you. So season it. Find those openings. Find those moments. Find those open doors. Slip it here. Slip it there. You know, just kind of work it in. You can't just come in there and walk into work tomorrow and just say, you know, start reading Genesis 1-1 in the mailroom. Probably not going to go over too good. But, you know, you have that conversation with that friend of yours who's got cancer. Hey, I'm praying for you, man. And then he bites a little bit. Yeah, you know, Bible says I could, pray to, I could pray through Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? No, what are you talking about? Work it in. Season it, man. When you put a little seasoning on, oh, that tastes good. I want a little more. So, so have that salt shaker ready and start seasoning in conversation. Find those moments where you can slip it in and see if anybody wants a little more and serve them up some more. But don't choke people out. Don't, you know, lock them in the corner and say, all right, listen to me now for 15 minutes. You can't move. Right? It's not going to work too good. Keep reading. Seven and eight. How about with each other? All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. What are we supposed to do with each other? We're supposed to comfort one another, brethren. That's what we're supposed to do. It's a tough world out there. We're getting our butts kicked every day out there. Media, lost people, the godlessness of this age. We don't need to be around each other and be kicking each other around, tearing each other up, looking, at each, looking down our nose at everybody. I know nobody's perfect, I know. But it's saying, I'm sending this guy to you to comfort your hearts. Help each other, strengthen each other, provoke each other, encourage one another. That's what we got to do. This is a hospital, right? Let's, let's, let's minister to each other. We've all got faults. We've all got shortcomings. We're all not who we should be. But they tell us that out there. Let's not just keep hammering people in here. Because if we just keep hammering people in here, they're going to stay out there. Because at least the lost friends welcome them at the bar and say, come on, buddy, let's have a drink and cry together. If you can't cry with your brother or sister and help them out, then what are we doing? Amen. Supposed to comfort one another. Sometimes it's sharp. I know the pulpit, sometimes it's meant to rebuke. But a pastor is given the role of rebuking. We're not supposed to walk around rebuking one another. I challenge you to see if you find Christians in the New Testament told to rebuke one another. Amen. Exhort one another, provoke one another, but don't go around zinging each other. Sometimes you've got to take a brother on the side and say, brother, straighten that out. But the goal is to comfort, to edify, to strengthen, to help build this thing up, not tear it down Amen. like a foolish woman. Um, verse 11, and Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. It's both directions. I'm sending him to comfort you. This guy's comforting me. That's how we build each other up. That's how we grow. Keep going. Verse 12, <clears throat> Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Paul says, like Epaphras, we should love each other so much, we pray for each other and we care for one another. Epaphras, he loves you so much 
that he's praying for you all the time. That's how we should be. Even if you can't make a prayer meeting, you're thinking about people, whether it's a prayer partner or just the name comes across your mind, pray that person up, pray that person up, pray that person, help that person, help them. This, not go get them, Jesus. That's not it. Help that person, Lord. Strengthen that person, Lord. What does he need, Lord? What does she need, Lord? Help them out. Encourage. You know, reach out. Strengthen them. Don't let them fall, Father. Don't let them go astray, Lord. Bring them back home, Lord. That's Epaphras. He had such a zeal for the brethren, even though the people in Colossae were messed up and the people in Laodicea made Jesus sick. He's praying for them. He's got zeal for them. He's got a heart for them. He cares about them. That's what we should be with each other. Comfort and care, comfort and care, comfort and care. And then, last verse here, Paul ends the letter with this, verse 18. Remember my bonds. That's very telling. He's writing it from jail, and he ends the letter saying, remember my bonds. Why? First reason. This is supposed to be read to the Laodicean church, right? The Laodicean church age would be marked by persecution. Paul ends his life in bonds. The church age ends with the majority of Christians facing persecution. We don't feel it in America, but I get a map every year from Voice of the Martyrs, and it puts a big puts the world map up, and it shows you where the gospel is hostile, where it's violent, where it's dangerous. And it's more than it's not. There's more places where it's harder to be a Christian than it's not. We're living in a bubble, people, but step out of this bubble and go to parts of Mexico, go to parts of, go to parts of Europe, go to all over Asia, go all over Africa, go all over the Middle East, and they'll, they'll kill you, they'll ostracize you, they'll take from you, they'll do things to you that you can't imagine. Paul says, remember my bonds. Remember that not everybody has it as good as you. Remember that this church age ends in persecution and imprisonment, and the Laodicean church especially needs to remember that life is not about ease and comfort. It's not about ease and comfort. That's why Paul says, remember my bonds. I'm the great apostle Paul. I'm the minister to the Gentiles. I'm the one that got committed the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jesus Christ himself, and I'm rotten in a jail cell. Remember my bonds the next time you cry in your beer because they, you know, didn't give you a raise that was high enough, right? Just remember my bonds. We, gotta, like, we need a little soberness check there. All right, two big ideas. Let's go to Revelation 3. I'll hurry through these here. It's a powerful book, Colossians. It's exactly what we need in this Laodicean age. Look at uh, first big idea. We're in Revelation 3. First big idea that I take away from this. Ready? Thanks, Brian. (laughs) You don't have to be in Laodicea to be affected by Laodicea. You don't have to be in Laodicea to be affected by Laodicea. Colossae was about 10 miles from Laodicea. The Colossians were not in Laodicea, but they were clearly affected by Laodicea, so much so that the the letters had had to be read to each other. And you may not be a Laodicean Christian, and I pray to God we're not a Laodicean church, but guess what? You are affected by Laodicea because you're living very close to Laodicea. You're living in the Laodicean church age, and it affects you. 
with its prosperity gospel, with its desire for ease and comfort, with its lukewarmness. It's very hard, even though you say, I don't want to be a Laodicean Christian. I'm not from Laodicea. I want to be a Philadelphian Christian. But you're very close to Laodicea, and it affects you more than you realize it. And the Laodicean Christian is just lukewarm, tepid, apathetic, uncertain, uncommitted. That's lukewarm. Hello. That's very close to all of us. Very easy to just make it a Netflix night instead of going to church. Very easy to just sleep in and go for breakfast instead of going to church. Very easy to just go get a coffee instead of go do Operation Jerusalem. Very easy to just chillax instead of pray it up. It's right there. We're right. It's all around us. We may not be laying the scene in our spirit, but it's the flesh is very weak. Amen. That's a big idea. Watch out. Laodicea is all around you. You're not far from it. It affects you. And number two, if Laodicea is the problem, the book of Colossians is the antidote for the Laodicean age. It's what we need to hear. It's the antidote for the spirit all around us. Revelation 3.16, Jesus says... So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The Laodicean church made the Savior sick. It made him want to throw up. That's not a compliment, by the way. Why did it make him want to throw up? Because verse 20 is what made him sick. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The Laodicean church made the Savior sick because the Laodicean church had the Savior, Jesus Christ, on the outside of the church asking to come in. The church he died for, the church he was the founder of, the church he bled for, the church he was the head of, the church where he was supposed to be preeminent. He's like, what's the password? Um, me? <laughs> Can I come in there again? You see, it's the Laodicean spirit that wants to make Jesus part of your life. Nobody's sitting here today or in churches around our neighborhood that are evangelical so-called Bible churches. They wouldn't dare say Jesus isn't real. They wouldn't dare say Jesus isn't the Savior. But invite Jesus into your life. What? He is your life. Make Jesus part of your life. Jesus is my co-pilot. Right? All these quips and phrases. That's the Laodicean spirit. If that's the Laodicean spirit, the antidote is the book of Colossians. Christ is all. Christ is all. Christ, not a part, all. Everything. Overall. Lord of all. The first and the last. He's it. 2.19 of Colossians says this. If you want to flip back there, we'll end on that verse. It says of these people in Colossians 2.19, that they're worshiping angels and all this stuff vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. And it says, they're not holding the head, capital H, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment and ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. When the body gets separated from its head, it doesn't live very long. <laughs> Maybe a moment. <laughs> when your body if it ever gets separated from your head, you're not going to live much longer. You're pretty much done. And when the church gets disconnected from its head, when the head is on the outside asking to come in and we've broken fellowship with our head, Jesus Christ, we're not getting the nourishment. 
We're not getting the strength. We're not growing the right way. We're not getting the nutrients and the information that the head facilitates to the body. So we got to hold on to our head. So in short, the book of Colossians tells us, Christian, don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. Don't make Christ part of your life. He is your life. Hold the head and you'll grow the way the head. The head directs the body. Those of us that are martial artists, you know, you know that if you get somebody in your grasp and you could turn the head, you would turn the whole body, right? Because the head directs the body. So don't lose your head because the head is here to direct the body. Let's pray. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you tonight, Lord. We just pray these truths will sink down deep in our heart. Help us, Lord, to remember them, to believe them, to trust them as only you will enable us, Father. May you be all in our hearts, our lives, our minds, and most of all in our churches and our families. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.